We return this week to our series on miraculous births. And we saw at the beginning of that series, uh, if I could have the slides up, please. We saw at the beginning of that series <clears throat> that the birth of Jesus was not the only miraculous birth recorded in the Bible. Quite far from it. In fact, there were uh, seven other miraculous births and each of those seven point us in some way to the most miraculous of them all, the birth of Jesus Christ. So if you remember, we have Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Samson, Samuel, the boy born to the Shunammite woman, and John the Baptist. And each of these were born to women who uh, were either not able to conceive previously or who were quite advanced in years, well past childbearing years. And each of those births point in some way uh, to the one who was to come, the one miraculous birth that would be set apart from all the others because Mary uh, was not unable to conceive and she was not elderly in age and well past childbearing years. She was in fact young, but she was also a virgin when she conceived. So from Isaac, who was the first child to be born miraculously, we learned of God's provision of a sacrificial lamb. From Jacob, the man who wrestled with God and then clung to him, came the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. Uh, Joseph and Samson uh, were deliverers of God's people, delivering them from famine and from their enemies. Uh, and then today, of course, we have Samuel, who was judge, prophet, and priest, and who also had a very important role to play in ushering in uh, the kingship. And we'll see how each of those uh, today are fulfilled in Christ. Then the boy who was born to the Shunammite woman, of course, as he grew up later on, he died, and he was brought back to life in the, the days of Elisha. And then finally, of course, John the Baptist, who prepared the way for the Messiah. He was the last of the Old Testament-style prophets who came and prepared the way for that most miraculous birth of all. Now, of course, in every miraculous birth, there are at least two key players. There's the child itself who is born miraculously, but there's also a mother who gives birth. And in many of these stories, there is a father who's mentioned as well as, as integral to the story. But today I want to focus on just the two key players, uh, the mother, Hannah, and the boy who was born, Samuel. And you will find the details of Samuel's birth in the first chapter of 1 Samuel. And parts of that uh, Errol has already read to us today. Hannah, as she told us, was married to a man named Elkanah, and Elkanah had two wives. Uh, one, of course, was Hannah, and the other one, Penina. Now, quite why Elkanah had two wives, we don't know. Uh, this was never part of God's plan and where it is mentioned in the Bible, it is almost without exception played out negatively 
Um, so there are consequences of, of that. And you'll see that today in the enmity that forms between these two wives. There is every indication in the text that Elkanah was a devout and God-fearing man. And so it seems most likely that as was the case uh, for Sarah, Hannah's inability to produce a child for Elkanah weighed heavily on that couple. And it seems like this was the most likely reason for Elkanah having taken a second wife because in those days it was important that an heir be produced uh, so that the land could remain in the, in the family line and the name would not be forever lost. In those days, that was a very big deal. It's not such a big deal today, but we have to step into, into the culture and times of the day. So this man, Elkanah, he had two wives, Hannah and Penina. Now, Penina had children, but Hannah did not. And I think we were all able to understand Hannah's sadness at that situation. Any woman who has longed to have children and has been unable to conceive would quite well understand Hannah's situation. There's nothing cultural about that. But perhaps what is a little bit more difficult to understand is the shame that she felt because today many people decide not to have children and there's no shame in it. But in those days, there was great shame for a woman in not being able to produce an heir for her husband. So the sadness and the shame would have been hard enough for Hannah to bear, but Penina made sure that she rubbed salt into those wounds. Once a year, the family would make their annual trek to Shiloh uh, to make a sacrifice there and there would be a, a feast and Elkanah would pass out the, the meat to all the members of his family. He would distribute some to Penina and make sure that all of her sons and daughters received a share. And to Hannah, he would give a double portion. And the scripture tells us this was because he loved her and because God had closed her womb. Now this, it seems, did not go unnoticed by Penina and she took every opportunity to taunt Hannah until she would weep and she would refuse to eat. Once, after enduring such humiliation at the hands of her rival, in bitterness of soul, a weeping Hannah pours out her heart to the Lord in the tabernacle. And she makes a vow to the Lord that if he would only look upon her misery and remember her, his servant, and give her a son, then she would give that son to him for all the days of his life. And at the end of that vow, she makes a statement that no razor will ever be used on his head. And to us, that part sounds a bit strange because we don't really care if children have long hair or short hair. It makes no difference at all. 
But what Hannah is doing here, if you remember back a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Samson, is that she's making this vow on behalf of her as yet unborn son, as yet unconceived son, to commit him to be a Nazarite. And that commitment will be for his life. So you might remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Samson, we looked at what this vow meant. And this was a vow that people would enter into voluntarily for a set period of time. And during that period of time, they would not drink wine. They would not eat anything from the grapevine. They would keep themselves clean by ensuring that they never came into contact with any corpse. And they wouldn't cut or shave their hair during that time. The end of that time, a set specified time, they would make a sacrifice and they'd be released from the vow. The vow would be completed, fulfilled, and they'd go back to their normal lives. So this was normally voluntary and it was normally only for a specific time. But here in the case of Samuel, it is his mother who offers him voluntarily as a Nazarite of God for life. So you remember with Samson, it was the uh, angel of the Lord that told them that their son was to be a Nazarite. But here in this case, it is Samuel's mother that makes that commitment on his behalf. Now, as she's praying and weeping and pouring her heart out to God, the priest Eli is sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the tabernacle and he's watching and he's seeing her weeping and he's seeing her mouth continually moving frantically, but he's not hearing any sound coming from her. And as he watches, he's seen it all before. He's seen many families come and go Shiloh is a place where they would come to make their sacrifice. There would be feasting happening there. And so he's pretty convinced that this woman here in the tabernacle is drunk. And so he confronts her. And she assures him that she is not drunk, just praying out of her great anguish and grief. And so he sends her on her way with a blessing. Early the next morning, they rise, they worship the Lord, and they begin their journey home. Elkanah lies with his wife Hannah, and we are told the Lord remembered her. Now, this doesn't mean that up until this point, the Lord had forgotten all about Hannah, didn't know she existed forgot all about her. There is no issue with God's memory here. The, word, the words as they are being used are simply telling us that God is now about to act. A new chapter in his plan is about to unfold just as happened when God remembered Noah on the ark. He hadn't forgotten that he'd asked Noah to get on the ark. Uh, the same as when God remembered uh, Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. He hadn't forgotten about them during that time. But a new chapter 
in his plan was about to begin. So time comes again for the annual family trip to Shiloh to make the sacrifice and this time Hannah has a child. After so many years of watching Panina's family grow and grow, after enduring the taunts of her rival for such a long time, now here is Hannah's opportunity to enjoy this trip with her baby, her own baby, in her arms. And it's at this point that she does something very strange. She doesn't go to Shiloh. She doesn't head to Shiloh feeling vindicated with this child in her arms. Instead, she remains home until the child is weaned so that her next visit to Shiloh will be to offer him there to God to leave him in the care of the priest. And it's hard to imagine how she must have felt during those years that she had Samuel with her. Knowing that very soon this baby would grow, very soon he would be weaned, and she would be leaving him. This child that she'd longed for for so long in the care of the priest before the Lord in the tabernacle. I think most mothers would be trying to drag out that period of breastfeeding for as long as they possibly could. Or perhaps many of us would have succumbed to the temptation to just keep quiet about the vow that we had made. No one had heard it. The priest, Eli, hadn't heard what she said. Her husband was off eating with the rest of his family. It was just between her and God. But Hannah was serious about the vow that she had made. And so she was determined to honour it. So the child is weaned and she wastes no time. She doesn't even appear to wait for the next annual trip to Shiloh. As soon as the child is weaned, she begins gathering the things that are needed for the sacrifice. And she takes the boy to Shiloh and presents him to the priest Eli. And there she leaves him in the Lord's service. Try to imagine what that must have been like for her to have left her only son there in the care of someone else. You see, Hannah recognises that this child that she's asked for, this child that the Lord has given her, does not in fact belong to her. He belongs to God. And so she's determined to fulfil her vow. But more than that, Hannah can see in her own circumstances the way that God has worked throughout history to deliver his people. And even more than that, she can also see the way her own circumstances 
are pointing forward to something even greater. For Hannah, her real joy is not in the birth of this little boy. Her true joy was found in God and all that he had done and all that he would do. And we can see all of this if you flick forward to the next chapter and read through her prayer. It's well worth reading through her prayer and comparing it to Mary's prayer uh, in the Gospel of Luke. We can see the language that she uses in the prayer. God, who had been up until now described as Israel's rock, has become Hannah's rock. The weak and the humble are exalted and the, and the powerful are humbled or brought down. That's the language of Exodus. It's the language of God acting on behalf of his people in the many battles uh, that they would fight. And her prayer, if you follow it through to the end, ends on a prophetic note. She recognises that God will strengthen his king. Now remember, it, we're in the time of the judges here. There was no king. And yet she says that God will strengthen his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I think miraculous births exist in the Bible to make us stop and think. They're there to make us stop and take note. And in this instance, I think it's not only Samuel that we are supposed to take note of, it is Hannah as well. Hannah was taunted by her enemy. And in that respect, Hannah represents Israel. But she also represents all the rest of us. God acted on Israel's behalf to deliver them from their enemies and he acted on Hannah's behalf to deliver her from her enemy by sending a son. To deliver us from the enemy by sending his only son. Her heart rejoiced. The opening words of her prayer says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. She praises God as holy, as faithful, as creator, as all-knowing, all-powerful, as sovereign and just. And how much greater should our rejoicing be? Because God has delivered us from the enemy from Satan by sending his son. Well, the child Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord under the guidance of the priest Eli. And every year his mother would make him a, a new little robe and take it up with the family as they went up to offer their sacrifice at Shiloh. As a boy, the Lord called Samuel and from an early age he was recognised as a prophet. I've put some references up there for each of these things. 
He was a judge over Israel from his youth unto his last days. And unlike Samson and some of the other judges who had preceded him, there were no serious flaws in his character to compromise his time as a judge. Samuel also functioned as a priest. He offered sacrifices. He interceded on behalf of the people. And although he wasn't uh, from a high priestly family, he did take on that role of priest for Israel during that time. And under his leadership, the people repented of their idolatry and they defeated the Philistines in the battle at Mizpah. Uh, the Bible tells us that for all of his lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the enemy of Israel, which was the Philistines at that time. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we learned about how Samson began the delivery of Israel from the Philistines. The, words, the Bible specifically had that word there that he began. And Samuel would continue it, but it would not see completion in either of their lifetimes. Samson, as we heard a couple of weeks ago, had some serious flaws in his character. Samuel did not have those same flaws. Samuel was a faithful leader He's listed among the greats of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But he was still limited. He was a human being. He was born miraculously, but he was still a human being. And he was just a shadow of the true deliverer who would be coming. If you think of some of the sporting greats of the world, even the very best of the best must eventually accept that their greatness is finite. Age eventually catches up with everyone. And for each of these sporting greats, eventually they decided to retire from their chosen sport. But many of those who retire decide to have a shot at a comeback. And at best, usually it ends in mediocrity. But at worst, it can be a disaster. Tennis great Bjorn Borg won 11 Grand Slam titles and he called it quits on his career at just 26 years of age. But 10 years later, he and his wooden tennis racket were back. His longtime rival, John McEnroe, famously advised him against it. The world of tennis had moved on a long way in 10 years. Bjorn Borg lost every match he played in his comeback year without ever winning a single set. AFL great Tony Lockett pulled the pin on his 16-year career in 1999. At that time, he was the highest leading goal kicker in the game. 
three years later, he was back. It only took him three games to realise that he was no longer as capable as he once was. And so after only three games, he hung up the boots for a second time, this time for good. Or five-time Olympic gold medal winner, Ian Thorpe. He hit pause on his swimming career in 2006. Six years later, he returned seeking selection for the 2012 London Olympics. He did eventually get there, but he wasn't part of the swimming team. He went as a commentator. Muhammad Ali, Michael Jordan, Joe Lewis, Lance Armstrong, Mark Spitz, Dennis Lilly, the greatest of the greats in their chosen field, all of them learned through their comeback years that greatness has its limits. Human greatness has its limits. Revered as he was during his lifetime as a prophet and a priest and a judge over Israel, Samuel's greatness was also limited. Like everybody else, he became old. He had to hand on some of his duties to his sons who took on the responsibility of being judges over Israel. But his sons were not men of integrity like Samuel was. And so the elders of Israel gathered to demand that Samuel appoint a king to lead them. And the Lord led Samuel. And eventually after Saul, David was anointed as his chosen king. And from David's line would come Jesus. There are many similarities between Samuel and Jesus. Samuel functions in the Old Testament as what we call a type of Christ. That means his life foreshadows uh, the Messiah. Both Samuel and Jesus were born miraculously. Both of their mothers were blessed before the children were born. Hannah was blessed by Eli the priest Mary by the angel Gabriel. Both of them were dedicated in the tabernacle or the temple. Both of their mothers praised God for their sons. And you can read uh, the songs that they prayed uh, in, in 1 Samuel and in the Gospel of Luke. Both of them were found serving as children in the temple. Both of them, scripture says, grew in stature and in favor with God and people. And both of them ended long periods of silence from God. Before Samuel, the people were not listening. The word of the Lord was rare and there were not many visions. Before Jesus, there were 400 years of silence from God. Now, all of these similarities are enough to make us stop and take notice. But it is Samuel's role as prophet, priest and judge and his part in establishing the kingship in Israel that really ought to make us take note. 
As a prophet, Samuel spoke the word of God to Israel. Jesus is the word of God. As a priest, Samuel offered sins uh, for Israel, offered sacrifices for the sins of Israel, and he interceded on their behalf. Jesus, as our great high priest, offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And at the right hand of God, he intercedes on our behalf. As a judge, Samuel led the tribes of Israel and he delivered them from their enemies. Jesus is the head of the church and he delivers all who trust in him from the enemy, Satan. Samuel inaugurated the kingship in Israel from which there would be a long succession of kings. Some of them were good, some of them were not so good, some of them were awful. Only Jesus is the true and perfect king, the eternal king of God's kingdom. Jesus would fulfill and he would complete each of these roles of prophet, priest and judge and king. And from the very beginning, the first pages of the Bible, right the way through to the very end, the Bible points in just one direction. It points us to Jesus. Jesus was not God's last resort, the plan B or C or D that he pulled out when all else had failed. All of the Bible attests to him and to his coming and to his coming again. You will find him in the Old Testament not only on the lips of the prophets, but you will find him in echoes and whispers and types and in shadows all the way through its pages. And all of them point in the same direction. And among them, Hannah and Samuel stand out like beacons, pointing to the birth of Jesus, to Mary and to Jesus. There was a student at a theological college in the USA named Bernard Traviel. And he used to enjoy playing basketball. But the theological college had no basketball stadium. And so he and his fellow students used to go down the road to a nearby local public school where they used to play basketball and where the kindly janitor would sit and wait until their games had finished. Invariably, he sat reading his old Bible. One day, Bernard went up to him and asked the old man what he was reading. And the man didn't reply simply the Bible. He said instead, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And Bernard was surprised. The book of Revelation is a difficult book to interpret, even for highly trained scholars. 
And yet he was this man of little to no education, a janitor, and he claimed to be reading the book of Revelation. Bernard was intrigued. This was a book that had baffled people. Yet this old man sat happily reading. You understand the book of Revelation? He said to him. What do you think it means? The old man looked up at him and he said very quietly and simply, it means that Jesus is going to win. And from the first pages of our Bibles to the last pages, all of the signs point in that one same direction. We may not understand all of the details of it. We just need to know the outcome. Christ was the hope for a suffering Israel. He was Hannah's hope in her suffering. And he remains the only hope for a suffering world today. Amen. Father, would you help us to see, as Hannah did, just what you have done for your people. Help us to understand, as that janitor did, just what it all means. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son. Thank you for sending him to free us from the consequences of our sins and to restore us to a right relationship with you. We pray for any who have not yet recognised you as their Lord and Saviour, that on this day, in this Christmas season, that this will be the one when they accept the greatest gift that was ever given, the gift of a son. Amen.